0: morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Today, December 7th, in the USA is known as the day of infamy. Tomorrow, December 8th, is known in Astoria, USA as the day of infamy. The first commemorates the Japanese aerial assault on Pearl Harbor in 1941, which literally bombed the USA into World War II, and which ended with the nuclear devastation of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, four years later by American bombers. Today's program focuses on the day of infamy, when the city of Astoria, Oregon became an inferno on December 8th, 1922, 101 years ago. I start today's program with an account of that fire commemorating its 25th anniversary in 1947 by longtime, now deceased newspaper man, Walter Matula, which was reprinted in the North Coast Times Eagle issue of December 1992, the fire's 70th anniversary. The Great Astoria Fire, by Walter Matilla, and a little bit of a preface that I wrote. In the early morning darkness of December 8, 1922, a fire started in Astoria that was comparable in its local effect to the fires that swept through Rome, 64 A.D., Chicago, U.S.A., 1871, and San Francisco, U.S.A., 1906. The fire burned for 22 hours, destroyed 32 blocks in the city's heart, and left at least 200 homeless in Astoria. Three persons died, one possibly an unrelated suicide, and damages were estimated at nearly $20 million. The fire's origins were never determined. Aid poured in from all over, Portland contributed $53,000, and Victor Astor in New York sent $5,000. Walter Matala wrote the following account of the Astoria fire in commemoration of its 25th anniversary in 1947 for the Astorian budget. It was midnight. Doc Holder, sergeant in charge of the night shift of the Astoria police, pulled open the drawer of the high desk at headquarters and picked up the time book. He turned several pages of names and X's until he came due December, 1922. Doc ran his finger down the column of dates to Friday, December 7th, and put a cross after the names of nine officers and Mrs. Maddie Haddocks, the police matron. It had been a quiet night. People had less money to spend. 600 men lost their jobs in Astoria three months before, when the Hammond Mill burned. Doc did not like the looks of the full-page advertisement of the Morning Astorian for a closing out sale of Westerhover Brothers. In the classified ads, he noticed that V. Turvo 294 Taylor, was offering seven trolling boats for sale. Fishing must not be good. At 12.15 a.m., the phone rang. A patrolman called from Peel Brothers Pool Hall. Everything's quiet, reported the officer. Few drunks got on the last streetcar. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang again. It was another patrolman calling, all quiet at Helberg's Corner. Downtown Astoria was having its last cup of coffee and a sandwich. Patrolmen saw the crowd of dancers pouring out of the Dreamland dance hall. The officers were looking for IWWs who might have sneaked in the hall to get away from the cops. A patrolman spotted a group gathered before the AG Spexarth Sporting Goods and Jewelry Store, 514 Commercial Street. They were all dressed. How do Wobblies dress? the policeman wondered. He listened to their conversation, all very harmless, about old man Speckarth's funny notion about Astoria burning up some day. The patrolmen turned off all except the night streetlights and peered more closely for the wobblies. Longshoremen stalked into the Liberty. They had finished loading Mill Run on a ship at Pier No. 1 and had orders to report in the morning at the Sanborn Dock. Patrolmen suspected there might be a Wobbly among them, and that was the old IWW, International Workers of the World, but not a Wobbly carrying posters, and that's what Chief Leb Carlson wanted. The patrolmen nodded to two streetcar conductors, Conrad Thomason, 1789 Franklin, and Ross Van Ostdor, who lived out of town towards Svensson. They came in for a cup of coffee at the Liberty and bantered with the proprietor, Lucas Frantzowicz, about no more free coffee, no more free rides. Conrad was on car number seven and Von Olsdow on number 15. They had the full run of track from Glasgow to 45th Street. Their cars were in the barn west of Astoria after the midnight trip. It was 1 a.m., firemen were asleep. Every station had its extra men, some sleeping at the station, others with alarms in their homes, ready to be picked up. Chief Charles E. Foster, who had seen most of Astoria burn early in July 1883, had retired. An alarm and a phone were beside him. Foster had been a firefighter all his life, a volunteer in the great Astoria Volunteer Department until he was made Chief of the Organized Department. This plain, serious and practical man was honored in his profession. In August, he had been elected Vice President of the Pacific Coast Fire Chiefs Association in San Francisco. Foster had observed the temperature gradually fall during the day, until at 7 p.m. it was 36 degrees. But the barometer was falling, and the wind was switching from east to southeast. Perhaps the threat of a freeze-up and greater fire hazard would pass over. Foster had inherited a terrible legacy of fire hazard. Slipshod and compromising improvements in his clear judgment had only increased it. Under pressure of higher and higher insurance rates, Astoria had been bullied into erecting a seawall and partially filling in the streets, which had stood on piling. This half-measure, filling the street bed with some eight feet of the wooden viaduct of timber capped with blacktop, Foster had warned was creating a fire hazard, even greater than in the days when the Columbia River's tides lapped up to Exchange Street, Foster had inherited an out-of-date city of deteriorating wooden buildings. Over his protests, the city had laid its water mains downtown on wooden blocks between the wooden streets and the sand fills. Over his objections, the city permitted any property owner who made a fuss and knew the right people to knock a hole in the tile firewall that fenced in the fill and rose to the bottom of the outer edge of the wooden sidewalks. Foster had inherited the shell of dying enterprises. Astoria's waterfront had been built up for making money and handling grain, Shanghaing, and fleecing its large male population of seamen, fishermen, and loggers. There had been no building inspectors. This waterfront empire was dying, The town still retained the name of a wide-open hangout, but the money in crime was gone. So was the big shipping of the 1870s and 1880s. The cannery empire was past its prime. The Chinese and Hindus employed in the canneries and mills were gone. Foster inherited their combustible shacks. But the politics of the bygone age and a few of the politicians were still trying to run the show. Their enemies, growing stronger daily, were the people who wanted their insurance rates down from $50 for $1,000 coverage downtown to $3. Corrupt and inefficient government cost too much. It was 2 a.m., This old shell over an old but still vigorous city had 20 minutes more to go before its terrifying death pangs. The elements were set for the kill. As Foster had sensed, the wind swung around to the south and freshened. Only a few showers fell, and the temperature climbed from 35 degrees at midnight to 44 at 2 a.m., At 2.15 a.m., fire alarms rang out at all stations and homes of the volunteers and Chief Foster. Then followed a series of five short rings, the death knell for old Astoria. Firebox 55, 12th and Commercial, called out firemen at all stations. The new Stutz roared out of the headquarters at 17th and Commercial, picked up the Chief on the fly, and hooked on the hydrant at 12th and commercial. Smoke wreathed out of the big beehive department store, the center of Astoria retail trade, and a model store of its kind. Christmas gifts, toys, and an early Santa Claus held forth in its broad display windows. Fire lighted the basement of Teal Brothers, the pool hall at the west of Beehive on the north side of commercial, west of 11th. Headquarters firemen ran their line to the pool hall, raised the trap door. The basement was a furnace of roaring flames, blowing helmets off the heads of the firemen. There was no time nor opportunity to investigate what started the fire. Chief Foster directed the La France hose wagon from the station at 4th and asked her to work on the fire, suddenly bursting out from the basement of an adjoining store. Fireman Wayne Osterby and extra man Joe Schomburger ran their line into the basement. A sheet of fire climbed the walls. Yellow spouts of fire shot up on the floor. The floor collapsed, and the shelves of goods fell in a heap on the firemen. Osterby climbed up the hose and reached the street. Then he eased the hose down again in the smoldering mass, and Schomburger grabbed it and also reached the street. From Alderbrook Station came firemen Mel Grimberg, Otto K. Banksund, Dobie Backlund, and Os Manula. They reinforced the commercial street stand. It was 2.20 a.m. The quartermaster on watch aboard the lighthouse tender Manzanita called the skipper, Captain Charles A. Modier. Fire broke out in the heart of town, said the quartermaster. The skipper ordered the Manzanita, which had fire hose, to pressure for immediate assistance. Its lines could not yet reach the fire. A blaze of lights broke out in the telephone exchange as phones went out. Night operator Eva Hansen plugged in and pulled out cords by the hundreds. Property owners were being warned by their employees, friends, police, and the crowding crowd of fire watchers. Ships summoned crews, police summoned men off shift, and calls, and calls came in. Mrs. Hanson called J.A. Brunhold, the company manager, operators, and business office employees. Brunold was awake. It was feeding time by the clock for Dolores their two-month-old baby. The morning Astorian was ready to go to press without a word about the fire. Walter Jakomensen, linotype operator, had left shortly before the alarm and noticed the fireman by the time he reached the Palace Restaurant 538 Commercial for a snack and a cup of coffee. He tried calling the morning Astorian to report the fire, but the phone was dead. As he turned back to go to the newspaper, flames had broken through the Teal Brothers and were lighting up the beehive. Hold the press for an extra, Jim Sellers, editor of the Morning Astorian, told Royal Carnan, superintendent of the Morning Astorian plant. Newsboys waited impatiently. They wanted to see the fire. At 2.26 a.m., the wind gauge at North Head clocked the wind now from the south at 40 miles an hour. At 2.40 a.m., the sign on Handley Spool Hall and Brown's Shoe Store across Commercial Street from Astoria Hardware Company burst in flames from heat. Smoke rose like a dense fog on both sides of Commercial Street from buildings still untouched by the Inferno at Teal Brothers and the Beehive. Turn your hose on Brown's roof fire fans yelled at Osterby, who had been a fireman for six months. He obliged, but the water reached only to the top of the windows. The crowd shouted at Osterby to make the water go higher. They blamed him for no spurt in the hose. It was 2.40 a.m. The main at 11th and commercial perched on wooden blocks under the creosoted viaduct had melted and burst. Water pressure soon fell all along Commercial Street. Chief Foster, in whose hands was thrust the fate of Astoria, had already decided that his men would have no water in the main part of town. He directed Henry Jokominson to run the Stutz pumper to 14th and Commercial and get water out of the river. The tide, at 10.10 p.m. Friday, had been two feet, but the pumper drew in the Columbia. Working the four hose lines from the pumper were Jochamson, Tiny Aragoni, Clarence McCoy, Dutch McCroskey, Frank Smart, Paul Kearney, Fred Lazell, Tony Antioch, Tim Andrich, Harry Yeager, Fred Lehman, Arvid Heinemann, and Jack Corcoran. Firemen from the Uniontown Station, which also had an American LaFrance hose rig, laid out their lines on Bond Street, where Foster knew the fire would have to be held to save the waterfront and kept from sweeping west to Union oil tanks and those of Standard Oil Company. If these tanks went up, all was lost. On the Bond Street hoses were the regulars, Victor Auland, and Sam Berg, Al Graken, Leo Fernie, Al Davis, and Jimmy Kaufman from 4th and Astor shifted towards 14th and commercial. Chief Foster was asked to use dynamite to blow up fire breaks. The excited crowds milling around the fire were for dynamite. I am a fire chief, not a dynamiter, Foster told groups of desperate citizens. Without his approval, A truck was dispatched for dynamite to a logging camp, and Astoria was soon booming. For a time, the blasting was directed by experienced loggers who were accustomed to using dynamite blasting stumps and choker holes. Then amateur blasters got a hold of the explosives. It was 3 a.m., excited, wild-talking residents from the west end, from the hill, and from the east end, streamed to the fire. People from Ilwaco and Chinook flocked to Point Ellis. The air dome of the Stutz Pumper blew up. Walter Christopherson of Pacific Machine and Auto Works welded the brake and water shot out again from the hoses against a fire that kept on coming, north, south, east and west, often breaking out far ahead of the cauldron at the heart of the doomed city power failed. Gas mains burst and blazed. Cars, trucks, wheelbarrows, and stooped backs and held out arms, carried away goods from stores. Stacks of office furniture, phonographs, records boxes, and bundles of articles, fur coats, dishes, lodge paraphernalia, all the goods of the city were heaped back of the fire. They had to be moved again As the fire advanced, looters snatched goods, broke into stores, and carried off stocks in the guise of helping out. It was bright as day in Astoria, except in basements, inner rooms, and where smoke rolled thick. Women, excited by a fire in the beehive, had aroused their husbands who were less indifferent to a beehive fire. Mayor James Remner called Portland's Mayor Baker. Brunold talked to Baker. Two steam fire pumps were put on a flat car in Portland and hooked onto a locomotive. Walter Long, representative of the American La France Company, fueled up a demonstration fire pumper, and Portland firemen volunteered for the dashed Astoria. General George A. White of the Oregon National Guard organized, and dispatched bedding and field mess equipment. Property owners were in anguish. Less than 50% of the $18 million of real estate going up in smoke was insured, but 20% of personal property, all because insurance rates in the combustible old shell that Astoria was were too high. Heavy stocks for the Christmas trade The crowd thought of its stomach. Demand for food, now and tomorrow, when there would be no Astoria, grew insistent. Restaurants served coffee while their equipment, cutlery, and dishes were moved out. Norris Staples, president of the Bank of Commerce and owner of the Staples Motor Company, dropped dead, pushing a car to safety with his son and Lloyd Van Dusen. Jack, Cornelison, seaman on the tug on Conta, misjudged the distance to the dock at 16th Street in the smoke and fell into the river. He was drowned. Only one man in the night of lost fortunes, sweeping of lifetime stakes, could not take it. He was a logger whose body was found hanging the next morning under the Sanborn dock. Everybody else had no doubt Astoria would come back. They grieved the loss of their glamorous, if somewhat old, city. There was many a dance in the old dame's spirit yet. It was 3.30 a.m. Fires cropped out on Automobile Roll on Doyne Street and closed on the Weinhard Hotel across Doyne from the Astoria National Bank Building on the southeast corner of Duane at 12. Lawyers in the bank building did not move out their records, safes, and law books. The building, they thought, would not burn. In a few minutes, law books were flying out of the bank's upper windows. On the street, a few people laughed. The world could get along without law books. Looters ignored the volumes. It was 4 a.m., Chief Foster had hope of stopping the east front of the fire from Bond to Exchange at 14th Street. A slight breeze blew from the east. To the north, the fire roamed toward the Sanborn docks and warehouses. Boats and barges of the Calendar Navigation Company were anchored in the river. To the west, the fire moved at will. There was no water. To the south, it threatened to sweep onto exchange and into a residential area. The clock outside the Astoria National Bank stopped at 4.20 a.m., its face blistered. Ten minutes later, the fire hoses of the Manzanita met the fire encroaching on the waterfront and moving westward. The ships shifted with the fire front to Ninth Street, where a crew of lighthousemen led by Claude Asquith, Saved a concrete apartment house already afire. Long distance calls went out for hose to Seaside and Portland. Hose laid out on the hot streets were damaged and burst. Where there was no water, dynamite was substituted. Hotels, dwellings, and street intersections went up and the fire went on. On the waterfront, the dredge clots up moved in at 8th Street and saved the block between Bond and Commercial. This was the critical front against the onrush of fire against the canneries and oil tanks. It was 5 a.m., and all was lost on 14th Street, just as hope was high that the fire could be stopped. The Stutz pumper was running low on gasoline. Fires broke out on 17th destroying the fire station itself, and doubled back to 14th. The morning Astorian went up in smoke without giving out an extra with the greatest news story in Astoria's history. The power failure prevented the paper from going to press with the extra. Reporters had done their part. It was 6 a.m., 3 hours and 45 minutes since the alarm sounded from 12th and Commercial, More than 200 business establishments had been destroyed. 30 blocks were in glowing ruins. Firemen fought to save the city hall and St. Mary's Hospital. Patients were removed to the Astoria High School. Volunteers, many of them small boys, carried away medicines and equipment from the hospital. Bottles were dropped, adding strange odors of medicines to the stench of the burning city. The two steam pumps arrived from Portland. This building survived. All of Astoria that once stood on stilts in the downtown area was burning by 6 a.m. From then on, the fire was gradually put under control with some losses. The Spexarth building, a modern concrete structure, resisted intense heat and survived. The post office west of the Spexarth building caught fire from sparks in the terrific heat. It was extinguished and no serious damage inflicted. Late in the day, snow fell over the black ruins of the old Astoria, but it melted in the embers that glowed for weeks while the new Astoria was born. Astorians, all of them, as if their spirits had been tempered in fire, took on the task of rebuilding their city. In the blackest hour of the destruction, There was no wailing voice of defeat. And that was The Great Astoria Fire by Walter Matala, who was a newspaperman. He wrote for the Astoria Budget, The Oregon Journal, and The Oregonian. In the early 1960s, he worked for the great but short-lived strike newspaper, The Portland Reporter. He was a founder of the Finnish American Historical Society in Portland and wrote many articles and small books about the Northwest Finnish community, among them Boarding House Finns, Union Town Finns, and Finns and Finnegan's. He died at the age of 69 in 1974. This is Michael McCaskey. Joanne Rideout continues to engineer this program. You've been listening to A Story Told on KMUN, featuring Michael McCusker, journalist, activist, former firefighter, and Vietnam veteran. Michael has been sharing essays and poetry on A Story Told for decades on KMUN. For 30 years, he published the North Coast Times-Eagle newspaper out of his home in Astoria, Oregon. Michael currently shares his work and the works of other authors from his home on the central Oregon coast. Join us here next week for A Story Told.